This evening we celebrate the Lord's Table, which is one of the most significant and serious events in the Christian life. Before we begin, I just want to focus our attention for a few minutes by reading through some Scripture. I want to read from Isaiah chapter 53. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. As we think about what is said in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, it is striking that this was written in the 7th century B.C., some 600 plus years before the advent of our Lord at the Incarnation. It's remarkable because of the detail of this prophecy. Within Isaiah 53, there's at least five or six different prophetic details that could not be fulfilled accidentally in the person or in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just another remarkable indication from Scripture that the Word of God is not simply the Word of men about God, but it is divine revelation. It is God speaking to us. It is God giving us information about Himself and about how to have a relationship with Him. That relationship is based upon the fact that He sent His Son, the second person of the Trinity, to go to the cross and to die for us. God had a remarkable plan. It was a plan of fantastic detail and comprehensive complexity. If you think about all that went into bringing about that initial incarnation that Galatians 4 speaks of as the fullness of time, we just stand in awe of how God worked through human history. Sometimes people wonder why it is that God didn't provide a Savior in one of those first four or five generations after the sin of Adam. And it was because it took so long in order to prepare the human race for the need of a Savior to recognize that man on his own was completely incapable of doing anything about his own sin, 
but also to bring about what was necessary in that incarnation, to provide a time and opportunity and individuals through whom the humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ could be born. Isaiah 53 speaks about his humanity, that it was perfect, that he was one who had done no violence, that there was no deceit found in him. He was one who was perfect. He was one who was sinless. And this is why when we come to the Lord's table, we partake of the bread first of all. The bread speaks of the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it speaks of his credentials. And before he could go to the cross, he first had to be born among men. He had to be born in such a way that he was preserved free from inheriting Adam's original sin so that he would not have or receive the imputation of Adam's original sin. And just think of all the the incredible things that the Lord had to do in working out the virgin birth. We have the virgin conception, the virgin birth, the incarnation, which, of course, we've just focused on at, at Christmas time. And that was for the purpose of going to the cross. Jesus became a man for the purpose of dying on the cross for our sins. And so we have the second element of the Lord's table. And this is a cup of grape juice we use. Originally it was a cup of red wine, and it's the color of the, of the wine or the grape juice that is what is significant in the symbolism because it was to represent Blood, blood that was shed in a violent manner, blood that was shed in an unjust manner. The Lord's trials were not just, they were not according to law, and it was sort of a, um, he was sort of run through uh, makeshift trials, both among the Sanhedrin and the Romans, and so there were many inequities in that decision. Nevertheless, the result was that God used our sinfulness, the injustice of human systems, to bring about the death, the punishment of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it wasn't the physical punishment that was so significant. As we read Isaiah 53, it talks about the physical suffering that our Lord went through. And it does us good to meditate some on that physical suffering not because the suffering in and of itself had a redemptive purpose, as is indicated by, for example, the recent film, The Passion, but because when you look at the totality of what happened at the time of the crucifixion, as Isaiah points out, the Lord, twice Isaiah points it out, that he go, he's oppressed, he's afflicted, he's led like a lamb to the slaughter and a sheep of and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And twice the Holy Spirit repeats that phrase, so he opened not his mouth. And this is what was lost in that film, The Passion, is that after you go through all of the physical suffering and torment that the Lord went through, and it was horrendous, he didn't open his mouth. Because compared to the suffering that he endured when our sins were imputed to him, that physical suffering was nothing. It would be like a, a mosquito bite for most of us. And that's one of the things that's brought out in the text is the contrast there. Once sin came up, was imputed to the Lord, he screamed out 
in agony to emphasize the fact that it's not the physical torment that was so horrible. It was bearing our sins in his body on the cross. When we come to the Lord's table, it's a time of significance and a time of of, uh, sober reflection because it is a time for all of us to remember that it is for each one of us that the Lord died. When he hung there on the cross between heaven and earth, it was your sins and mine that he had in mind. He didn't die there for some universal principle of sin. He died and paid the penalty for our sins, for the sin of Adam, the sin that separates us from God. And so at the, at the Lord's table each month as we celebrate the Lord's table, it's a time for us to, to be brought up short, as it were, brought back to reality to recognize that no matter what has happened in the intervening time period, whatever distractions may have come our way, whatever successes or failures we, have, we may have encountered, the one thing that every single one of us has in common is that we were in desperate need of salvation and that Jesus Christ came to earth for you, for me, for every single person in the human race. He came for the purpose of dying and going through uh, inexplicable pain and suffering so that we could have eternal life. The Lord's table is a reminder that we all have to stand at the foot of the cross. We all have to trust in Christ exclusively for our salvation. None of us is any better or any worse than the next. We all need the grace of God. When Paul had to chastise the Corinthians for their abuse at the Lord's table, he told them that it was important for them to examine themselves before partaking of the elements. The reason is that we need to be in fellowship. We need to recognize that that we're not just coming to this lightly or in a hurried manner, but that this is an event of significance. It is a ritual that has profound reality and that we need to make sure that we are in right relationship with God, that we are in fellowship with Him. And so we always take time to make sure that we have no unconfessed sin in our life, that we are indeed in fellowship, filled with the Spirit, and ready and prepared to worship Him. So we will bow our heads together. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will return thanks for the bread. Let's pray. Father, as we partake of the bread, we are reminded that it speaks of the humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ, that He was impeccable, that is, He is sinless, that He was born through virgin conception and virgin birth so that there was no uh, inherited sin nature, there was no imputation of Adam's original sin, and He lived His life in a sinless manner so that He was qualified and prepared to go to the cross. And that he who knew no sin, the scripture says, was made sin for us. And that our sin was poured out upon him on the cross and he bore that penalty. As we eat of the bread, it is a picture 
of the fact that at one time we received into uh, and accepted and believed that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. Father, we ask that you sanctify this. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As our Lord celebrated the Passover with his disciples, he took the bread that was unleavened, indicating his humanity, and he broke it. And then he passed it out to his disciples and he said, This is my body which is given for you. Take and eat. Father, we thank You for the cup, for the cup represents the work of Jesus Christ from the cross on our behalf. It speaks not of His physical death, but of His spiritual substitutionary death when He paid the penalty, the judicial penalty for our sins on the cross. Father, as we partake of the cup, we pray that we would be mindful of all that was involved in our individual salvation and that we might not take Your grace and Your love lightly. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. After they ate the dinner, our Lord then took the third cup, called the cup of redemption, and He invested it with new meaning. He took the cup and He said, This cup is the new covenant of My blood, which is given for you. As often as you drink this, do so in remembrance of Me. Let us all stand together and we'll sing... When I survey the wondrous cross, on the third verse, we'll sing softly and then crescendo on the fourth. A couple of announcements before we get started. This week, I'll be leaving to go to Kiev, so I appreciate your prayers. I'll be leaving Wednesday afternoon. Turns out a couple of members from West Houston are going to meet me in Kiev next weekend, so that should be interesting. Never had anybody join me on one of these missions trips before. Uh, I will be gone next Sunday, but David Dunn will be here. You all know David, and he'll be here on Sunday evening. Um, January the 18th, that Tuesday, there will no, be no Bible class. That next weekend, however, Charlie Clough will be here. Friday night, 8 o'clock. 
I think somewhere in, in my announcement here it says 7.30, but it's 8 o'clock. Make sure you get that 8 o'clock on Friday night, 6.30, Saturday night, 6.30, Sunday night. Weekend uh, at 6.30. He doesn't, I don't think he lands until about 4.30, so we have to make sure we allow enough time. And remember to be flexible. He's coming out of the great northeast, and this time of year, I've done it so many times, you just never know what can happen weather-wise. So there may, if there's, watch the weather, and if there's some kind of snow problem on, up in Maryland on uh, Friday, then be careful. Uh, he'll be here next Friday, or the, that next Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And then on Tuesday the 25th, there will be prayer meeting and Bible class as usual. I return on the 29th, and we'll have uh, standard operating procedure starting Sunday, January, 20, uh, January 30th. And that week, we will begin a Tuesday and Thursday night schedule. And at this point, I'm revising my uh, study, and I think that on Thursday night, we're going to begin a study of Hebrews. So when I get back from Kiev, we'll do Sunday night Revelation, Tuesday night Genesis, Thursday night Hebrews. Before we be, uh, begin our study this evening, I want to make sure that uh, we're ready to, to study His Word, so we'll ask His guidance on our study. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for this opportunity to study Your Word. We pray that You would uh, help us to understand the things that we study, that God the Holy Spirit would challenge us in each of our own spiritual lives with the uh, principles from this study that we need to apply. Father, we pray that we would have the spiritual courage and conviction to take the things that we learn and apply them diligently in our lives, that we may grow and advance by means of the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit, that we can honor and glorify you to the maximum in our own lives as we advance towards spiritual maturity. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation Chapter 2. How teachable are you? Now, we all like to think that we're fairly teachable and we're fairly objective. We know that when it comes to our own life, we might not be quite as objective as we think we are. But every now and then, we're brought up short by some sort of evaluation. And it really causes us to think about how objective we are about our own lives, in fact, how teachable we are. Do we just get so set in our ways and our habit patterns that when something comes along to evaluate or that causes an evaluation, are we really open to that? Take, for example, a situation where a close, intimate friend may say to you something like, well, you know, a true friend is someone who not only tells you what you would like to hear or gives you compliments, but will on occasion tell you things you might not want to hear, but you need to hear. And when they begin the next sentence by saying, now it's important that I'm honest with you, what's going on inside your soul? See, for many of us, we start to tighten up a little bit, perhaps. We don't know what's going to come. We, uh, we might uh, have our stomach turn over. We might get tense, break out in a sweat. We all respond different ways to personal criticisms. I'm not talking about negative, destructive type of criticism, but I'm talking about the kind of positive evaluation from perhaps an employer, 
perhaps a coworker, a friend, someone whom we trust, someone that we have a solid relationship with, who is honestly going to tell us something that perhaps we are not willing to face and sometimes we need to hear. If you're normal, you tend to tighten up a little bit with that. But Scripture tells us in Proverbs, let me see, if, uh, Proverbs 27.6, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Think about that. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Too often we think that, well, a true friend's just going to tell us the good things. Pat us on the back, make sure we feel good. Sometimes it's that way in marriage. I often uh, joke about the fact that when I'm performing a wedding and I'm going through the vows and talking about all the serious aspects of marriage, that what the couple's really hearing and thinking is they're looking at that opposite number thinking, well, I'm going to give you the opportunity to make me feel good for the rest of my life. You've made me feel great for the last couple of years or six months. I'm on top of the world. Now you're going to have the opportunity to do that for the rest of our lives. Unfortunately, life doesn't work that way. Sometimes we have to face some uh, difficult things about ourselves. We have to look into our own soul and realize that we're sinners and we have some flaws and failures that we really need to work on. That is, under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit and through the use of His Word. It's a test always of our objectivity, our genuine humility, and our teachability. When we come to Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we see an evaluation of seven congregations. What must the reaction have been among those church members when they saw these evaluation reports, especially the negative ones? What must that response have been? Because I've been around churches long enough in many different churches. Some of you all have only been around one or two different congregations in your life. But I've had the opportunity to be intimately acquainted with at least a half a dozen different congregations. And let me tell you as a pastor, one of the frustrating things is almost every congregation thinks they have it together. It doesn't matter whether you're a congregation here at West Houston Bible Church or whether you're a congregation in Connecticut or Dallas or wherever you might be, most people tend to think, you know, our church is pretty squared away. We have a couple little glitches here and there perhaps we ought to work on, but overall they're not too bad. We'll, uh, we'll eventually work on them. We're not perfect. The Lord understands that and and uh, we have a pretty good Sunday school class or prep school class, and, and our pastor teaches the truth, and our doctrinal statement is squared away. It's orthodox. And it doesn't matter what you're in. You may be in a Methodist church. You may be in a, in a liberal Methopresbyterian church. You may be in a, some Unitarian crowd somewhere just patting yourself on the back because God ought to be impressed with all your human good. It doesn't matter. Most people tend to think that when they're stacked up against all the others, they're probably not in too bad a shape. Just imagine what it must have been like in a couple of these congregations when they just got skewered by the Lord Jesus Christ and they didn't get one positive word of feedback from Him. And that's what we see in these seven letters to the seven churches. Now, one of the things that I've emphasized as we go through Revelation is that the outline of the book, 
given in Revelation 1.19, that there's a threefold division. This is indicated when Jesus says to John, write the things which you have seen, that's the first chapter. The things which are, that's present tense, and that covers chapter 2 and chapter 3. Chapter 2 and chapter 3 actually deal with church age issues. And in fact, as we'll see in our study of these two chapters, they present the various trends that you'll find in nearly every congregation around the world throughout history. And it's even some of these things will apply to us. And then the third division of the book, which begins in Revelation 4.1 and extends to the end of the book, is the, the things which will take place after this. So we've seen that there's a threefold division, and now we're shifting from the first division, the things which you have seen, that is the vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, walking in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, holding firmly to those seven stars that we saw represent the seven angels of these seven churches. And now we're going to see the church evaluation report. This is a personal report from the Lord Jesus Christ on each one of these congregations. I want you to notice that these seven reports deal with the congregations, not just the individuals. Of course, we know that every congregation is made up of individuals, and so a congregation is indeed the sum of the whole, I mean, sum of the parts. But there will be a congregational evaluation. I think it's interesting that this suggests that not only are we going to be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ in terms of our own individual spiritual life, but that congregations will also be held accountable for how the congregation as a whole responded to doctrine and responded to the teaching of God's Word. Tonight what I want to do is give us an overview of these seven churches. One of the things that happens so frequently when we study a book or we study a topic is we get so focused on the minutia of the topic or the details of each individual verse that sometimes we lose the forest for the trees. And so you should be familiar by now with the fact that every now and then I like to stand back and instead of focusing on the exegesis of one verse or a couple of verses, I like to take the overall section of the book and focus on that. What's going on here in Revelation chapter 2 and 3? Sort of a bird's eye view. We want to look at the whole map, as it were, not just the minor details in Ephesus or Sardis or Thyatira, Pergamum. We want to look at the overall view here and get a sense of what is happening in these uh, two chapters. The Lord Jesus Christ singles out seven congregations that he is going to uh, address. These congregations are located in the proconsular province of Asia Minor, Roman province on the western shore of what is now modern Turkey. As you can see by the location here, they aren't in all in a row. There doesn't seem to be any discernible pattern here. However, if you were to leave Ephesus, you could head north about 20 miles or so to Smyrna, and then another uh, 70 or 80 miles up to Pergamum. Then you would head uh, east to Thyatira, down to Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So they would, you would travel from one church to the next, all in the order that you find 
in these two chapters. question we should ask is why does the Lord Jesus Christ single out these seven uh, churches? You may not realize it, but in Asia Minor, there were somewhere between 500 and 1,000 villages or towns. Some of them were quite large. Ephesus, for example, had a population at this time of about 250,000. Smyrna was the second largest city in Asia Minor. But Philadelphia and Laodicea were somewhat smaller. They weren't very large. In fact, there were a number of towns and villages in Asia Minor at this time that were larger than Philadelphia and Laodicea. So these churches aren't chosen because of their size, because of the size or the significance of their cities. They're chosen for other reasons. Furthermore, there were numerous uh, churches in this area. In Acts chapter uh, 19, we're told that when Paul spent his two years in Ephesus, that he sent out missionaries from Ephesus, and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ was heard throughout Asia. So many churches were established back in that period from about 52 to 54, 55 A.D. In fact, it's been 40 years since Christianity came to this part of the Roman Empire, and there were probably more than one congregation in these towns. You can imagine that in a city the size of Ephesus, 250,000, that after 40 years of Christianity, there was probably more than one congregation, considering that they, especially in the early years, they didn't have their own permanent places to meet. So there might have been five or six different congregations, five or six different pastors in Ephesus and in Smyrna. This is one reason, again, why I don't think that the uh, angel here refers to the pastor, because there were numerous Christians and congregations by this time. So what we have is a evaluation of where they're succeeding in their Christian life and where they're uh, failing in the Christian life. Now, why these seven churches? They're not chosen by their by geography, they're not chosen by size, they're not even chosen by their significance in the province of Asia. Why did the Lord choose them? Well, some people try to suggest that these churches represent different stages in the history of Christianity. And you'll often find a breakdown something like this, that, that the church at Ephesus represented the early apostolic church from Pentecost to the end of the first century, about 100 A.D. That Smyrna represents the persecuted church from A.D. 100 to 316. That Pergamos represents the early medieval church in its worldliness from A.D. 316 to 800. Thyatira represents the later medieval church, from 800 to 1517, the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Sardis is then said to speak of the rise of the state church in Europe from 1517 to 1750. The problem with that is it's been a state church all along. Uh, Philadelphia is said to be the missionary church. This represents evangelicalism from 1750 to 1900. And then the last church, Laodicea, 
and their lukewarm attitude to the Word is said to represent the apostate modern church from 1900 up to the present. The problem with this is that it seems to work, but only in broad, general categories. But once you begin to break it down and to actually analyze those periods, it doesn't fit. For example, as I pointed out, when you have the uh, Church of Sardis, the rise of the state church, it had always been a state church from the time of, of Constantine becoming the emperor of Rome, Christianity had been established as a state religion, whether it was in Rome or or France or Britain. It was a state church. So when you begin to look at it in detail, this kind of analysis breaks down. But what we do see here is that each of these congregations is chosen because they represent different trends in church history. They represent the different strengths and weaknesses that you will find in any congregation, in any country, in any culture, in any nation, down through the 2,000 plus years of church history. So when we look at this, we ought to look at these evaluation reports in terms of our own personal spiritual life and our own individual congregation. Just in terms of an overview, we look at each of these epistles and they have seven characteristics, seven sections as it were. Each begins with a commission. There is an address at the beginning to the angel of the church of Ephesus, the angel of the church of Sardis, the angel of the church of Pergamum or Thyatira or Sardis. Each has begins with an address. It indicates something specific about these individual congregations. Even though it's addressed, as I said, to the angel, remember in my analysis the last couple of weeks, I pointed out this is an angel, and it seems best to understand this as, as the, that the angel represents a, the, the Supreme Court of Heaven, much as a U.S. marshal represents the federal judge and is responsible for uh, protecting the judge, responsible for carrying out various judicial decisions, as well as making sure that the decrees of the court uh, are, are fulfilled in executing judgment. So these angels seem to have some function in that manner. There's an evaluation and a warning in each of these, in each of these short epistles, and so it would be this angel that's responsible for carrying out those uh, those judgments. We'll analyze that a little bit as we go through each of these individual uh, judgments. The, the letters are addressed to the angel, and they're, they use for the most part, with a few changes here and there, they use a second-person singular pronoun, you. Well, that you can't, isn't talking about the angel because the angel isn't guilty of these failures or he's not uh, the one who's committing any of these praiseworthy items. So obviously, it's addressed, it's given to the angel as a critique sheet, but it's addressed to the congregation. And it deals with specifics. It's very personal. It deals with where they're succeeding, where they're failing in the spiritual life. So each deals with a historical situation in a historical church. Second, there is some aspect of the character of Christ that's emphasized, usually part of the description of the vision that we saw in chapter 1. For example, in the epistle, 
to the Ephesians, it begins, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. The very first epistle emphasizes the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ as that priest judge who is walking in the midst of his church, uh, working to purify his bride. So there's a uh, citation of specific attributes of Jesus Christ at the beginning of each one of these letters. Third, there's a section of commendation in five of them. Two of them are congregations that are so carnal, so screwed up, that there's no condemnation. They're just, there's just condemnation. So there is a praise for specifics in their spiritual life, certain attributes and qualities in their, the spiritual life of the congregation that are, are praised. And then fourth, there is a condemnation a warning about certain spiritual flaws and failures in the life of the congregation, certain compromises that, if not corrected, will eventually destroy the effectiveness of that congregation. Fifth, there's a correction, usually in the challenge of repent, meaning to change your mind, or remember, uh, hold fast, something of that nature. There's a challenge to correct certain failures and flaws in their spiritual life. Sixth, there's a call, a challenge to obey. Usually it's expressed this way. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, listen and apply. When you see that word here in Scripture, it's not merely getting your your, uh, eardrums vibrated. It has to do with listening with a view to application. We're not here for some sort of academic exercise just to learn all kinds of interesting things about what the Bible says. But the challenge is to change our thinking, to change the way we think about all of our life, to change the way we think about reality. This is one of the reasons I spent a good bit of time the last two weeks talking about the role of angels. Because once you understand this, how all of our lives and the life of this church fits into this broader spectrum of the angelic conflict, then it ought to change how you think about what's going on every day in your life. Because your, your career choices, your relationship choices, how we spend our money, how we spend our time, all of these things are talked, are taught in the scripture and talked about in the scripture. And it's to be part of our spiritual life that fits into this pattern of our testimony in the overall angelic conflict. We get so caught up with all the details. What are we going to have for breakfast? How am I going to get to work on time? Uh, what about this person at work, that person at work? I've got this project that's eating me up and there's not enough time. We get so caught up with our, our finances and paying taxes and, and how are we going to pay our bills that sometimes we forget how it fits into the overall spectrum of what the Lord Jesus Christ is doing in our life and in all of human history. So there's a call to listen and apply. Seventh, there's a challenge. There's a personal promise of a reward at the end. In each one of these, there is a promise that the one who overcomes, that is, those who respond to the correction, those who respond to the condemnation and are truly teachable and show genuine humility, And even though they may not like hearing what the Lord Jesus Christ says to them, even though he's stepping all over their toes, even though you may not like what the Scripture says or what I say, and trust me, I try to keep my opinion out of it, it's what the Word says that matters, no matter what happens, if you're teachable, you'll sit there and you say, I don't like it, 
but it's right. And I need to do something about it. Not in your, the energy of the flesh, but under the filling ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. So this is the structure of each of these seven epistles. Now, let's look at them. There are seven. Seven epistles. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. As you begin to go over these, you realize that they're not all quite the same. For example, the letter to the Ephesians has only one negative, but there's an eight positive characteristics that are praised. Then you come to Smyrna. There's nothing negative said about Smyrna. In fact, there's uh, two churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia, that have no negative qualities. Smyrna has four positive attributes that are emphasized. Then you come to Pergamum. Pergamum has two negatives and only one positive. Thyatira has five positives and one negative, but that negative is serious and significant. Sardis has two negatives and no positives, but those two negatives are rather broad and they are detailed. The Philippian, I mean the um, Philadelphia church has four positives, no negatives. Then the Laodicean church had two negatives and again, no positives. Now I want you to think about this a minute because here you have a situation where some of these folks knew each other. They traveled around. There were merchants that went from one city to another. In fact, it's very likely that there were folks at the Ephesian church that were related to folks in the church at Philadelphia or Laodicea. They did business with people at the, in the Smyrna church. Now, it would be very tempting to sit in judgment of another congregation. After all, you've got the goods on them right here. This isn't just some gossip we heard about. We're here at Ephesus. We've got... We've got a number of things going for us, and we've only got one problem, but you folks over there over there in Laodicea, you're not doing anything right. Boy, aren't they a bunch of screwed-up believers. And see, it would be tempted to get involved in mental attitude sins and judging those other congregations, and you can't do it. You have to focus on your own spiritual life, your own congregation, and where you're going, and don't become distracted by somebody else's congregation or what you perceive to be the flaws or failures in some other group. Now, as we look at these, I want to break down the commendations in a broad sense. I want you to think about back when you were a kid. I don't know what it was like where you grew up, but I grew up here in Houston. And back in uh, the 50s and the 60s when they would give report cards, On one side of the report card in elementary school, there was a list of character qualities, self-discipline, willingness to work with others, a number of different things like that, and you received a check, plus, or a minus. On the other side of the page, you had your academics, and you got your grade A, B, C, uh, D, or F. I want you to think of these commendations here in terms of that character side of that report card. I want you to think in terms of your own spiritual life. Because what we see here in these seven epistles is the Lord Jesus Christ emphasizing what's going to be evaluated at the Bema seat. 
I mean, how much more clear can it be? Here's a letter from the Lord Jesus Christ to each of these congregations. And as we compare them, we see that there are a number of things that he emphasizes. In each one of these, he begins with the statement that I know your works. This is really a general overall statement. It's not... Uh, it's a generic term, and if we go to other passages in the Scripture, I think the idea of works is really application. It's not talking about uh, how many uh, Sunday school classes you've taught or how many times you've gone to Bible class or how many notebooks you have filled with Bible doctrine. It's talking about application. Jesus says to the congregation, I know your application. Don't try to pull the wool over my eyes. I know exactly how much application is coming out of this congregation. Now, you may not have much experience with different congregations, but I do. And every congregation has different characteristics and different qualities, just as, as this, these uh, chapters are emphasizing. So Jesus is saying, I know your application. And then he gets into specifics. Aren't you glad he's not addressing this to us? First of all, he says, I know your labor. This is in the Ephesian church. I know your labor. And this has to do with, with what you're doing, how uh, in, intense you are in your own application of doctrine and your study, whether this is a priority or not. He says, I know your labor. I know where doctrine is and the application of doctrine is on your scale of values and how hard you're working at applying doctrine. Is this just some... Bundle academic exercise. Do you like going to this church because that's where your friends go? Do you like going there because the pastor is uh, pretty smart and you agree mostly with what he says and he's got a conservative politics and so you like that and so you're very comfortable with that congregation? Well, how serious are you about your own spiritual life and taking what you're learning and putting it into application? When the pastor talks about learning Scripture, memorizing promises. Do you go home and say, you know, I need to start memorizing some promises. Let me get a promise book. Let me make a list of certain promises that I need to pay attention to. And let me start going through the daily discipline of memorizing Scripture. That's not easy. It's hard work. It's hard to find the time. Last year, year, last summer, I decided that I was going to start memorizing the book of Revelation. And I made it through the fifth chapter, and then I moved. I, not only have I not memorized anything since I moved, I've lost what I had before I moved. It's, it, and I can't get that schedule back. Every morning I would get up and I had a solid 30-minute block and I would work on memorizing Scripture. It's easy to get distracted. But it's laborious work to memorize the Scripture, just to memorize ten salvation verses so the next time you get an opportunity to witness... You can call them up they're on the tip of your tongue, and you can use those while you're witnessing to people. This isn't talking about just working in the local church like, like folks do, and they have various different gifts, and they come and they do the setup here and that. It's not talking about that kind of labor. It's talking about labor in terms of your own spiritual life. Third characteristic is patience. Bad translation. It should be endurance. This is what... Paul emphasizes in Romans 5, it's what James emphasizes in James 1, that when you encounter various trials, you do it to develop endurance, endurance in applying doctrine. No matter how much pressure there is, no matter how uh, difficult it becomes to apply the Word and how easy it might be to succumb to the sin nature, you endure, you hang in there in the midst of trials. So they're praise for endurance. 
They're also praised for not being able, for not enduring evil people. They didn't just sit there in their pew emphasizing privacy when they knew that there was some serious evil going on in the congregation. That's one of the things the Corinthian congregation got chewed out by Paul about. There was a guy in the congregation who was uh, married to his stepmother or living with his stepmother. This was may not be a heinous sin in our culture, but in the Corinthian world, even the unbelievers were shocked about this. And so Paul said, you need to get rid of the guy. You need to get, take care of that because it looks to the unbeliever like you're just a bunch of, of antinomians and you're not really concerned about obeying, uh, obeying God. There's no morality here. They're more moral than you are. They also evaluated apostolic claims. That is, if somebody comes in and they says they're a pastor, they say they were apostle, they say they're a, a whatever their spiritual gift is, in this case it was apostolic, they evaluated them to make sure that they fit the standard. And if they hadn't witnessed the Lord Jesus Christ's resurrection, and if they hadn't listened to the Lord Jesus Christ teach, and if they weren't a witness, I mean, if they hadn't been directly commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ, then they weren't a genuine apostle. They had patience, another bad translation in the King James. It's the Greek word bastadzo, and it means to carry a burden. And it's related to the idea of endurance. It's hanging in there, even though you have a burdensome responsibility, perhaps, in life, and it's burdensome because you're applying doctrine. You might think of taking care of elderly, ill parents, and it may become quite burdensome at times. But you know that your responsibility as a believer is to honor your father and your mother, and so you accept and carry that responsibility. That's the idea, carrying a burdensome responsibility, even though you could be irresponsible like, the, like everybody else around you and uh, live life your own way. Another characteristic that's praised is that they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now, we'll get into a study of who the Nicolaitans were, but essentially it was a system of doctrine that was antinomian. And so they, the, and the Ephesian church was praised because they hated the works, the application of these antinomians. And trust me, this is a major problem even in our culture. How easy it is to say, well, you know, grace covers it. I'll just prebound. You know what prebound is? You know you're going to sin, so you confess it ahead of time. Hopefully you'll get back in fellowship more quickly that way. And so we just think, and we've all done that. That's why we all smile when I say that. We all think, well, Lord, I'm going to go ahead and get angry or whatever it is, and uh, I'll just confess it later. Well, that's antinomianism. We treat sin lightly. And this was a problem with the Nicolaitans. Endure adversity, the uh, second letter, the letter to the church of, of uh, Smyrna. They're praised because they would endure adversity. They would go through tribulation. They're told that they will go through tribulation for a short period of time for 10 days. They're also praised because they uh, would be imprisoned for the faith and they would uh, endure the living in these adverse uh, circumstances. They were praised for the fact that they were in tribulation and in poverty. And the word there for poverty wasn't the normal word for poor, but it suggests, as we'll see, that their, their wealth was stolen from them under persecution. 
that they may have had homes, they may have had many possessions, they might have had businesses, but under persecution, because they were Christians, these were taken from them. So now they have nothing. Nevertheless, they are holding firm to the faith. So it's living in adverse circumstances. Other congregations, three of them in fact, were praised because they held fast to Christ's name. That is, they didn't give up on the deity or the humanity of Christ. They, they had correct doctrine when it came to Christology. And this, of course, resonates today because one of the greatest assaults that we're facing today is that Jesus wasn't really God. And so we're we going to stand firm in our Christology. Others are praised because they didn't deny faith even in persecution. They didn't compromise. There's a great story of, that I love to tell of Thomas Cranmer, who was the Archbishop of the Anglican Church. And under pressure and under tremendous torture, he recanted of his uh, Protestant faith when uh, this was at the time after, uh, I think it was after uh, Henry VIII had died, and uh, when Mary, his daughter, who was Roman Catholic, ascended to the throne, those who had become Protestants uh, earlier, uh, especially under her brother Edward, who just ruled for a short time, when they had become Protestants, uh, she began to torture them. That's why she was later called Bloody Mary, because she burned so many Protestants at the stake. And Thomas Cranmer was one of those, but when he was tortured, he recanted, and then the Catholic persecutors said, well, you took too long. We're going to burn you at the stake anyway. And so they, he recanted of his recantation. And when they tied him to the stake and they lit the bonfire, he held out his hand that had signed the recantation and he cursed it because it had betrayed his Lord. And he let that hand burn off while he sang praises to God. We don't know what it means to endure persecution. We don't know what it means to be tortured for our faith. Others in these epistles are praised for their service because they are willing to help with whatever it takes around the church, uh, teach in prep school, help with setup, whatever needs to be done, they're willing to give of their time or of their uh, finances or of their energy in order to do what needs to be done. Others are praised for their faith. That is, they have solid doctrine. They study the Word. and Doctrine is a priority. These are the, this is the checklist. Now, how do we stack up? when we evaluate our own lives. Others are praised for their obedient application of doctrine. They're not just learning to fill up doctrinal notebooks. They're learning so that it changes how they think, how they live. Then we come to the next section dealing with condemnations, various condemnations. The first epistle, the Ephesian church, is praised for many things, but then... The Lord says, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you left your first love. Here they're praised for their endurance. They're praised for their doctrinal accuracy, for the fact that they're testing the claims of apostles, that they uh, carry their burdens. Yet, nevertheless, the Lord says, 
I have this against you that you left your first love. They, and this is a danger for all of us. We end up emphasizing the truth so much and making sure we have our doctrine right and that we're applying doctrine that somehow we can easily lose that, that love that we once had for the Savior. When we first are saved and we realize the grace of God in our lives, there's an excitement and enthusiasm there, and we realize how marvelous our salvation is, and we begin to fall in love with the Savior, and we make doctrine a priority, but then some years later it's easy to get distracted by the details of life. And we no longer have that passion to make doctrine number one, in our life. Others are condemned because they compromise doctrinally with the doctrine of Balaam or others with the doctrine of the Nicolaitans and, and others with the doctrine of Jezebel. There's a lot of debate over the uh, exact nature of these various doctrines, but they all seem to involve the same things. Antinomianism. Uh, the doctrine of Balaam involved anti-Semitism. Sexual licentiousness and idolatry. They were willing to go along with the culture around them. They were willing to continue to let certain practices in their pre-Christian life continue in their post-salvation experience simply so that they wouldn't stand out in a crowd. Others are condemned because they have a good reputation, but nevertheless they're dead. The Lord Jesus Christ says, I know you have a reputation for good works, but you were dead. They're carnal. They're operating on human good and religion, and everything looks great on the outside. They have a good doctrinal statement. They seem to have good doctrine coming out of the pulpit, but nevertheless, they're living in carnality. They're loaded with arrogance. The same congregation was said to be defiled because they were living in antinomianism. Their garments were soiled, moluno, not the word we're uh, used to, uh, miino, but a different word, moluno, indicating that they have, they are uh, unclean. Now, it's a word that was used in the, in the Septuagint to indicate those who are perpetually uh, out of fellowship. Then we have the Laodicean church. They're accused of being lukewarm. They're spiritually useless. They're not going anywhere. And so they are challenged to grow and get, get back on target. Others are condemned because they're self-deceived and self-satisfied. They're convinced that they've got it all together, but they don't. They're said that Laodicean church is said to be wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, but they don't know it. They think they've got it all. They think they are the best church. And yet, the Lord says, you don't know it, but you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You're spiritually bankrupt, but you're not humble enough to recognize it. Then there are corrections in each of these epistles. A challenge to remember your first love. Don't forget that initial passion you had to know the truth and to make the Word a part of your life. Be faithful until death. No matter how tough it gets, no matter what the persecution may be, no matter how horrendous the torture, be faithful until death. Third, there's a correction to repent of doctrinal compromise and antinomianism, to change your thinking. The challenge to repent 
of sexual licentiousness and challenge to be watchful, be alert on their own spiritual life. Furthermore, they're told to strengthen their spiritual life. And we can only strengthen our spiritual life by learning doctrine and the filling ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, and applying what we learn. They're challenged to remember what Christ did for them and the grace that was given to them at salvation. To hold fast to the truth of God's Word. The Laodicean church is told to buy gold refined, that is, to buy that which has real value. Not the material things of life, not success, not prosperity, but doctrine, that which has eternal value. Buy white garments. In other words, spend your life emphasizing that which will have eternal consequences. Anoint your eyes, that is, quit being blinded by human viewpoint thinking and have your eyes opened by the truth of God's Word. And then to be zealous. Again, just another synonym for being passionate making the Word of God your priority and not, uh, not forgetting how important that is in your life. And then finally, there's a challenge. In the challenge, they're told that there are certain rewards. Some are promised that if they overcome, they'll eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God, special privilege in heaven. Others are promised the crown of life and that they won't be hurt by the second death. Another is told that if they overcome, they will be given hidden manna to eat, some sort of special privilege in, in heaven. They also get, would be given a white stone with a new name, special privilege, special rank. Each of these will study in turn. Others are given the uh, rank of morning star, which was given to the Lord Jesus Christ. Others will have their name honored and spoken before God the Father and the Holy Spirit. Others will have their name inscribed on a pillar in the temple as a memorial to their spiritual growth in time. Uh, Others will have the name of God written on them, and the name of the city of God is written on them, and Jesus Christ's name is written on them, indicating a special relationship with God in eternity. And then others are promised that if they overcome, they will sit on the throne with Jesus, and they will rule with him. This is our challenge. How do we respond? How do we respond when we take a hard look at each of these short epistles and instead of thinking that this applies to some congregation 2,000 years ago, we take this checklist and in the privacy of our own soul, standing before the Lord, we evaluate our own growth. We evaluate where we are spiritually. Well, that's going to be the challenge over the next several months as we go through each of these epistles in detail to see how they apply to us. Now that we have the overview, we'll see who has the spiritual courage to show up next week with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, this opportunity to stand before the mirror of your word, to let it honestly and accurately and objectively reflect on our own spiritual life, to show not only the areas of success, but also reveal the areas where we have failed, the areas where there are flaws, the areas where we perhaps have just not paid any attention because it's, it's, it's too difficult or it's a sin that, that we enjoy too much. Father, we pray that we would have the courage, the spiritual courage under the filling of the Holy Spirit to face what your word says, to accept these challenges 
and to continue on the path of spiritual growth that we may become mature believers to honor you and glorify you not only in time but also in eternity that we may be overcomer believers and that when we finally stand before you we will hear you say well done thou good and faithful servant Father we pray that we as a congregation may exemplify all that is positive in these evaluations and that we have the honesty and the objectivity to deal with that which is negative. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior. In His name, Amen.